Funding for The Spark is provided by Capital Blue Cross, focused on creating a healthier future for our communities through innovations like Capital Blue Cross Connect Health and Wellness Centers, which provide in-person services and inspire healthy living. Learn more at CapitalBlueCross.com. The Spark is also supported by UPMC, offering a broad range of cardiac and vascular treatments in our community. More information is available at upmc.com slash centralpaheart. Welcome back to The Spark. I'm Scott Lamar. In July 1972, U.S. Senator Thomas Eagleton was named as Democratic presidential nominee George McGovern's running mate. Rumors swirled almost immediately about Eagleton's medical history. Three weeks later, Eagleton resigned from the ticket, admitting he had been treated for clinical depression, including electroshock treatments. In the 50 years since, depression or any hint of mental illness was enough to sink a political candidate or someone in a position of authority. That is, until Pennsylvania's newly elected Democratic U.S. Senator John Fetterman sought treatment for clinical depression at Walter Reed Army Medical Center in Washington. Fetterman has been lauded by some for coming out publicly about his depression and criticized by others for not being forthcoming and transparent with voters. Major depression is one of the most common mental health disorders in the U.S. An estimated 21 million adults, about 8.4 percent of U.S. adults, experienced at least one major depressive episode in 2020, according to data from the National Institute of Mental Health. On The Spark today, we discuss depression. Joining us on the program are two psychologists, Dr. Jonathan Grancy, who practices in Lancaster, and Dr. Ashley Millspaul from Lemoyne. I want to welcome both of you to the program. Dr. Grancy, let me start with you first. Your thoughts on Senator, Senator Fetterman seeking treatment? Well, I think that was uh, very brave of him, and, and I agree with you that it does help to kind of champion the cause of depression, you know, because somebody who's very well-known is announcing that they have depression and seeking out treatment and then showing that they're, you know, going on. I, 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 it's really, it's good to see, but of course my heart goes out to him because he's obviously struggling. Dr. Millspaul, I mentioned that history, what's occurred in the 50 years since. Now, on the program today, we're not focusing on Senator Fetterman's diagnosis or the politics of this. But what that Eagleton-Fetterman, that time frame shows is that stigma, it existed 50 years ago. It still exists today. But that's why Senator Fetterman coming out publicly has been lauded by a lot of people. Why is there a stigma? I think there's a stigma partially because you can't see depression right now. Uh, we can see if someone has a broken leg um, and we can tell that that needs fixed and that needs a cast, but we can't necessarily see depression. Um, now there's miracles and medical technology every day. And so we're getting close to being able to do that possibly. Um, but I think that's the core of it. I'm not sure if Dr. Grancy, if you agree with that or have anything to add. Um, but if we yeah. don't understand it, it's a sure. Afraid. And I think also kind of going along with that, you can't see it, but the person behaves in a way that we normally associate with bad or undesirable or someone to avoid or whatever. So they they suffer all of these consequences for something that nobody can see. Mm -hmm. Yes. 
And and so, yeah, that stigma is, and as you said, Dr. Grancy, it is associated with something bad. Uh, that yes. it, over our history, and when I say our history, and I'm not just talking about American history, I'm talking about, uh, you know, for a long time around the world, that if someone uh, was suffering from a mental illness or uh, even, you know, just, when I say just, but depression, uh, that they were seen as less of a person, that there was something wrong with them. Well, yeah, there was something wrong with them, but that it was something that this is a person that should be avoided. So that stigma, to a degree, still exists, right, Dr. Grassi? Oh, sure. I mean, I think that it, it exists because people who are depressed are kind of off-putting or, or maybe a little bit intimidating or people don't know how to react to them. So that's what causes that stigma. It's just uh, people are uncomfortable being around somebody who is depressed. Dr. Millsball, it seems as that as though men are less likely to seek treatment for depression than women. Is that the case? Yes, that's what we're seeing. Um, or they are presenting with things that are uh, a little more socially acceptable for men. In our, the, our current zeitgeist, such as you know, perhaps anger management. Mm -hmm. um, or so as an example, if you're a police officer and you're depressed because of the constant trauma that you're seeing at work, uh, you may come home and lose it on the kids or lose it on your wife. And there's a response of you've got an anger problem. You need to. So people may come to you as a clinician for other things when the underlying root cause may be depression. So yeah. uh, a person, and I'll just give that example, use that example that you just used of a, of a police officer, uh, and I assume you're talking about a male police officer, uh, that even if that person is depressed, they won't admit it. They'll think it's something else. Well, and male or female as well. Um, you know, and I see this in the military as well, too. You know, there's a certain um, psyche that you need to have. Uh, to be attracted to certain work, uh, being male or female. Yeah, but yes, a lot of the times people are aware. Yeah, Dr. They Grancy, have it. they think there's something else going on. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to, add, yeah, what she said. It's that, that suck it up, buttercup sort of attitude in the military. You know, like be strong. Does one sex suffer from depression more than the other, though, Dr. Grancy? Um. Well, that's an interesting question. I don't know the statistics. I would imagine that it is, uh, I don't know. I, I think it's probably equal more or less between the two sexes, but I don't actually know the statistics on that. I think women are more likely to admit that they are suffering from depression. They're more likely to seek uh, treatment for depression because, again, um, it's more socially acceptable for us to do so. Yes. Uh, in addition to, I think there's also... Um, I mean, we are more alike than we are different, but women do also tend to be a little more uh, sensitive to negative affect within themselves or in others. And so that could also be, I mean, it's a multifaceted um, and complex diagnosis with many things that can affect it and make it better or worse. But I think that's a contributing factor as to why. Some of these questions, some of these you know, questions I'm going to ask may be uh, considered uh Depression 101, but uh, I, I, you know, I think that what happens often when there is a well-known person that uh, uh, is seeking treatment for 
whatever illness or disease, uh, that it brings more attention to it and people have questions. So, Dr. Rastin, let me ask you this question. What is depression? Well, that's a very interesting question. Um, I have my own way of conceptualizing it, um, but I guess the shortest answer would be um, one, there can be different reasons that a person would get to the point that they feel depressed. Um, there's a lot of uh, thinking, a lot of people that uh, ascribe to the biochemical model where there's something where the, you just don't have enough of the serotonin or dopamine or whatnot. Um, I kind of conceptualize it as more your emotional system has crashed and burned and is no longer able to produce the kind of feelings that you want it to produce. Mm. Uh, Dr. Millsball, let me uh, follow up with that. What is clinical depression? Is there a, a, a difference between clinical depression and, you know, many people just refer to those feelings that uh, Dr. Grancy uh, mentioned or described as depression. Is there a definition for clinical depression? Yes. The official um, definition of clinical depression can be found in the DSM-5. There are nine uh, symptoms and you need to have at least five of them. Um, and I'm happy to go through them if yeah, you'd like. Yeah, sure. Why don't you do that? Yeah. And so in order to have a depressive disorder, clinical depression, you need to have at least five of these symptoms over a two-week period, so at least 10 days. So from time to time, we all have a bad day, one or two bad days. It's, you know, it's normal. And to be clinically depressed is it needs to affect your work, your relationships, your life in a significant way in order to become a full-blown disorder. Um, and real quickly, these symptoms are anhedonia, which is lack of pleasure in things you used to take pleasure in. So you feel kind of depressed most of the day, feeling sad, empty, or hopeless. Uh, a second symptom is um, diminished interest, you know, anhedonia, which I just mentioned. Uh, you can either eat more or eat less. You can sleep more or sleep less. Um, and that can also vary from individual to individual. You may have insomnia and only sleep two hours on a Tuesday, and then you're sleeping 14 hours the next day on a Wednesday. Uh, that can also go back and forth. Um, there's some physical symptoms. So you might have brain fog, fatigue, um, feel restless, but not able to focus on anything, um, a diminished ability to think, concentrate, focus, make decisions, um, and then also thoughts of death or dying. So some suicidal ideation, be that active or passive. Um, and so all of these symptoms together, you need at least five of them every day for two weeks straight, and then you can be diagnosed with Depression. I just want to clarify something <clears throat> that that two week period and be diagnosed. You know, we all are sad sometimes, and we all have said, "Oh, I'm depressed today." But according to what you just described, there, you would need that two week period and five of those nine. Correct. Every day for that for that long, and so that's the difference between I'm having a bad day or two um, and being clinically depressed. So I, I, I like to use medical metaphors because that helps people understand. Um, you know, if you're just depressed for a day or two, you might um, have a cold or sniffles. 
you get home from work early, you take a nap, have some chicken noodle soup, get a good night's sleep, you wake up, you're fine in a day or two. Um, clinical depression is, you know, you've had the flu for two weeks, you need to go to the doctor, something's going on and you need some help. Dr. Grassley, let me ask you this question. And as I said, we're not going to talk about Senator Fetterman specifically, but he suffered a stroke last spring. Can a serious illness bring on depression? Sure. Absolutely. Um, Particularly a stroke. I mean, that was a life-altering event. Mm-hmm. A lot of people have asked, what comes first, the uh, illness or the depression? I mean, can people become ill, physically ill, after depression? Sure, absolutely. Uh, the mind and the body are in the same place. Mm-hmm. So they affect each other. So uh, absolutely, one can cause the other either, either way. Mm-hmm. Dr. Millswell, I see you uh, nodding your head in agreement. Yes, absolutely. We like to think of the mind and the body as being separate, but we really, it's really one. So, Dr. Millspaul, how is depression treated? Uh, it is most often treated with therapy and medication. The most recent research that I'm aware of is uh, you want to do therapy and medication. What I personally like to recommend for um individuals is to try eight to 10 sessions of therapy first, uh, because you do, we know we can do psychoeducation on exercise, uh, your diet, um, cause we've got serotonin receptors all throughout our body. Um, and a lot in our gut. And as we all know, if we feel sick physically, you, we get depressed, we get sad. Um, so if, and then if things are not significantly improved after eight or 10 times of meeting, then I recommend, okay, let's see what other what other supports we have to bring in. Um, because there's a lot of empirical treatments um, for depression that work. Um, and so a lot of people, if you do, as an example, eight to 10 sessions of cognitive behavioral therapy, where you're focusing on cognitive, your thoughts, behavior, you know, what's your sleep hygiene, what's your exercise, what's your diet, um, that you may never have a, a major depressive episode again. Um, and so it's very important, I think, for people to seek help and, and try to ask what's going on. Um, but the therapy is helpful in regards to learning new skills. Um, we may have not been taught how to, say, challenge our own thoughts or been taught by our parents, you know, appropriate sleep hygiene or not to eat McDonald's every day. <laughs> um, so little things like that can be very, very helpful when you have a, an expert doctor leading you the way you need to go. The, the same as if you know your doctor came back and said you have high cholesterol. So this is what we need to do differently for you, for your life, because you are genetically susceptible to high cholesterol. I want to talk about exercise and sleep and diet in just a moment, but Dr. Grancy, something that Dr. Millspaul mentioned uh, about parents is depression and mental illness overall. Can it be genetic? Uh, well, there are definitely uh, is that is a, a fairly common uh, scientific thought that there is a genetic component to depression. I look at it in a maybe more complex way where genetics maybe sets the stage for things that then can create depression. 
I'm not sure I would agree that it's directly because they have a particular brain cell, you know, that is coded for depression. I think that certain people are born with personalities and then they go through certain things in their early life that kind of direct or emphasize a particular part of their personality that then ends up causing all sorts of problems when they interface with the world, which then can result in uh, symptoms such as depression or anxiety or whatnot. So what you're saying, let me just uh, kind of rephrase it in a a different way, is that uh, just because a parent or your parents suffered from depression doesn't automatically mean that you will as well. But let's face it, that if a parent or parents suffered from depression, there could have there are some things going on in the environment that could have an impact on your life growing up as well. Absolutely. And they also, if you have a parent who's depressed, they're going to teach you how to be depressed. If you mm-hmm. have a parent who has PTSD, they're going to teach you how to have PTSD. I mean, that's just the way it's going to be. So, Dr. Millspaw, I want to go back to something you had said a little bit earlier. Exercise. We hear that often, that if you're feeling down, get out and exercise, that you'll feel better. Uh, you also mentioned sleep and diet. Uh, where do those things come in? I mean, we're, we're told about those things as, you know, to, to do those things to maintain a healthy lifestyle overall. So how do they impact depression? Um. Well, we're human and we're meant to be moving. And so a lot of the times uh, we think um, I'll, I'll do good once I feel good. But the reality is, is the way our brain works is you have to physically do good first and then you will feel good. Um, and a lot of the times also depression will lie to you and will say you need to go low, you need to go slow, you need to conserve energy, you need to stay inside. Now that may be helpful if you're recovering from a concussion, then yes, you need to listen to your body, stay inside, turn the lights off. But most of the time you need to get up, get out and get moving because it gets all those good juices flowing in your body. Um, you're getting sunlight. I mean, you know, and, and the, the research on exercise is that if you exercise vigorously, after three months, it's the same result of being on an antidepressant for three months. Hmm. Um, now, that being said, again, <laughs> it's nature and nurture. We all have different genetics. Um, you know, I might be able to eat a cake and not gain any weight, but you might eat a bite and gain five pounds. <laughs> We're all different. Um, so you need to take that into consideration when you're figuring out what what's going to work for you for your depression. What about sleep and uh, diet? Sleep is very, very important. Um, There's so much phenomenal new research coming out on the importance of sleep. Um, A metaphor I heard recently that that makes sense is sleep is like a washing machine when you're washing your dishes. If you open up the dishwasher in the middle of the cycle, you're going to build up these plaques constantly. Um, And so it's like a restart for your brain to wash all of the the toxins off to to reset. Um, And when it comes to diet, I mean, oh my gosh, you are what you eat. I mean, we could do a whole (laughs) whole week on WITF on on that. Um, You know, it it, it matters. Um, And so that's why a lot of doctors nowadays are also getting attuned to this and prescribing probiotics, et cetera. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know. So, Dr. Grancy, alcohol. There are a mm-hmm. lot of people who like to self-medicate when they are depressed. What role does that self-medication play in depression? Well, okay, so I'm a realist. So first of all, first of all, you have to acknowledge there must be something about alcohol that works at least part of the time because a lot of people do it. So that's the realistic part of it. And I would say probably what it does is it numbs people out. And for some people, that's better than feeling really crappy. You know, so um, but it is also a depressant. You know, it slows down your body and it also uh, you're poisoning yourself. So if you drink a lot of it, now you're really beating up your body and causing your body to um, malfunction, which is only going to make your depression worse. So it's a it does work um, short term, but at a terrible cost. We only have a minute left. I want to thank both of you for being on the program today. There are so many other questions we could ask about uh, depression, but uh, uh, one thing I always like to leave our audience with on a program like this is what kind of advice would you give someone who maybe is suffering from some of those symptoms, Dr. Millspaw, that you had mentioned earlier? I get about uh, 30 seconds. I would say go to... um... Pennsylvania Psychological Association website. There's a find a psychologist locator tool. You can enter in your zip code. I say call a psychologist today and go out and have a, get a walk. Hmm. Uh, Dr. Grancy, 15 seconds. How long would someone have to someone have to wait for an appointment though? That is actually a problem. Right I know now. it is. The very long wait list. I think that there's better help with telehealth. Um, and there's some different uh, organizations that now are doing that. Um, and um, this is going to sound crazy, but the AI mm. actually has a psychotherapist on it that actually made me cry. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Jonathan Grancy and Dr. Ashley Millspall, thank you very much for being with us today. You're welcome. Thank you. I'm Scott Lamar. Have yourself a great day. 